Before we begin this morning, um, if you're a first-time guest with us this morning, we're glad you're here. I am not Pastor Troy, and uh, he's normally the guy who's here in this slot at this time every any given Sunday, and um, he is recreating in the Alps. He, he climbs mountains for fun, believe it or not, and, uh, and so he is uh, with a, a longtime mentor and friend. Uh, going up and down the Alps, as Bart and I joked with him the other day, he is ricolaing, as, as we say. You know, he's ricola, you know, he's up on the mountain, yeah. So anyway, um, um, created a new word in, in, in that. But um, so, so he is there, uh, just a specific prayer request for him. Uh, a few weeks back, uh, I guess he stepped on a bolt or something like that and really tore up the bottom of his left foot. Uh, it's, he said it's completely healed, but he has been noticing in preparation for this trip as he's hiked with uh, different people and has worked out and, and got himself somewhat fit for the uh, challenge. Uh, his foot is still a little tender, and he really doesn't want to be uh, at the top of the mountain with no communication whatsoever, and then his foot really go out on him or, or have a really bad situation there. So please pray specifically for his left foot and uh, generally for his uh, watch care and safety as well as he is uh, really enjoying God's creation and sweet fellowship with, uh, with, uh, with a man he hasn't had long conversations with in a while. And so he's going to have a, a, a great time doing that and be in prayer for his family as well. Be sure and um, get with, uh, with the folks and make sure their every need is met with Beth and the kids while, while Troy is gone. So, all right, that one is uh, in the hopper, so uh, please be praying for him. Uh, let's, let's kind of move into the message. So the question is, have you ever been flummoxed? Have you ever been flummoxed? Flummox is a fun word. Um, how about this one? Have you ever been stymied? You know, I'm, I'm not going to list every word in the thesaurus that kind of applies to the idea of being stumped, but that's kind of the question. Have you ever been stumped? Maybe, maybe in a, a surprise birthday party, you know, you had no idea and all of a sudden people come around the corner and say surprise and you're, you're left speechless in that moment or, you know, maybe it was a geometry question. How many of you took geometry and loved it? Wow, a bunch of engineers in this congregation, it's crazy. Um, I had a teacher that just said, it'll, it'll, it'll click. Um, so, so, you know, maybe you're stymied over a difficult question on a test or an exam or something like that. Um, you know, maybe someone performed an, an amazing feat of athleticism. You know, this, this triple dunk thing in a basketball court or, you know, some sort of wiggly-woo that happened on the football field and you're just, you're just left like kind of, whoa, you know, you're just kind of speechless at that moment after seeing that, you know, because, you know, I could never do that if, as hard as I tried and that sort of thing, you know. There, there are different moments we find in our lives where we, we are officially stumped because of, of usually generally the outside circumstances that are impacting the moment and causing us to kind of remain speechless for a while. Well, the title of this lesson this morning is somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but it's How to Stump an Apostle. Okay, we, we did a series with the students on four ways to, to stump an apostle, and this is kind of a, an offshoot of that, but we're going to kind of talk about how to stump an apostle. And if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, you know really he, he can't be stumped. He always has something to say. In fact, even though he says here in, towards the end of chapter 1, so that we need not say anything which is kind of a shocking moment for, a, for the Apostle Paul to say that about himself and his companions because he has something to say to every church all of the time. There are four chapters after this chapter, so clearly he did have something to say to them. But in this particular instance, 
He's stumped, at least on some level. And I think it's a good stumping. You know, often we look and watch debates or something like that, and all we want to do is watch the opposite side get hammered and, and cause to be made speechless because of the superior, superiority of our particular argument or something like that. And we kind of grin sinisterly, waiting for that person to just go, you know, we got him or something like that. We're not trying to do that with the Apostle Paul here. But this is a very good thing that if the church is clicking in this way, if the church is, is tracking well on, on these things that we're going to look at, look at this Sunday and next Sunday, then uh, there's a possibility that as the Apostle Paul walks into the congregation, he goes, great job. Great job, guys. And uh, that is high praise if, uh, you know, that were the case. Okay, so as we kind of look at these things, we're going to kind of look at two different ways. I know you have a very detailed note sheet. That's all my fault. Uh, but uh, there, there are two things that we're going to look at this morning as uh, ways to stump an apostle. Number one is this, perspiration. Now, we who reside in, for, in Florida are familiar with perspiration, right? I mean, you can't hardly walk out of your house in October without breaking a sweat, you know, and uh, that's just, you know, the sacrifice we make to live in paradise. But, 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 but sweating due to climate is not what Paul was talking about here when he's talking about these people in Thessalonica. Look how Paul describes the actions of this church. Starting in verse 3, he says, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, generally, when words like faith, love, and hope are said, descriptors like grueling, hard, or torturous are not the first words that come to mind in trying to describe these three things. But Paul is saying that these people were known for these three things. Number one is this, they were known for their work of faith. And the idea of work is the idea of labor that springs forth from faith. Some tough questions to ask you here real quick, okay? You're hungry. What do you do? Go to the fridge. You eat. Yeah, Okay, here's enough, another tough one. You're thirsty, what do you do? Okay, number three, you're tired, what do you do? Sleep, that's right. Now here's, here's the fourth question. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, what do you do? You say, what do you mean do? You know, you just, you just believe. That's what it means to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You just believe, but... But there's more to true saving faith than just believing. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me over to James chapter 2. We're going to look in James, and then if you want to, uh, if you're a person who likes to know what's coming ahead, we also are going to roll over into Hebrews 11. But there is more to true saving faith than just believing. I don't mean in this that works equals salvation. I'm not talking about earned salvation. But in James chapter 2, starting in verse 14, here's what James says to the church. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, and be filled, without giving them the things they needed for the body, what good is that? 
So there's kind of three key statements in this. Here's the first one. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Going on in verse 18, he says, But someone will say, You will have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. And here's the second one. And I will show you my faith by my works. Going on in verse 19, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and then this final statement, and faith was completed by his works. So these three statements, faith by itself, is does, it does not, if it does not have works, is dead. I will show you my faith by my works. And then faith was completed by his works are statements that give us the idea that true saving faith, there's more to it than just believing. You say, what about the thief on the cross? Yes, he, he believed, but he also verbally stated the lordship of Jesus Christ. That was the only action he had. His hands and arms were a little tied up right th- at that time. So even in that moment, he gave verbal confirmation to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so we see in this situation where James is arguing that faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But if we don't believe that, turn over to Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews 11, starting in verse 4, it says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice. Verse 7, By faith, Noah constructed an ark. Verse 8, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place, and he went out, not knowing where he was going. Verse 32, And what more shall I say, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Verse 35, women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured. Some refused release so that they might rise again to a better life. And before we think the works of faith are always a triumphant kind of thing, verses 36 through 38, others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. So true saving faith does save. There's no doubt about it. It does save. And there is no work in that. We are saved by grace, as the scripture says. We're saved by faith. But it also sins. It not only saves, but true saving faith sins. And sometimes it slays. That's a preacher thing to do, isn't it? Sin slays, serves, you know, the, the alliteration or something like that. But, but we get the idea there that, that true saving faith not only causes you to believe and you are a child of God, but it also causes you to go. And not only causes you to go, but causes you to sacrifice in such a way that you may die. Which we see that in Hebrews 11. We see these triumphant moves of Noah built an ark. They did this. They did that. Some received back their dead, yes. But some lived in caves and some were even sawn in half. Which is the legendary story, at least, of what happened to the prophet Isaiah. 
They threw them in a log and they cut them in two. So saving faith not only is something that changes us immediately and saves us, but it's also something that sends us. And they are not only known for their work of faith, but it also says they are known for their labor of love as the second thing here. So the Apostle Paul really kind of turns it up another notch here. Because this word labor, when he says they were known for their labor of love, this word labor literally is the Greek word for beating or wailing on something. It's the idea that this is hard, wearisome work. Now, why is such an intense word connected to the word love? I mean, when we think of love, isn't love kind of supposed to be an easy, warm, cozy thing? I mean, isn't it supposed to be one of those fuzzy blankets on a comfortable couch on a cold, rainy day? You know, that, that's, that's how we think of love, you know, cloud nine, you know, easy and everything like that. But if you're a parent of a child, you know that that's not the case all the time. And if you're a child of a parent, sometimes you know that's not the case either. In fact, that would, that would be true, the, the, that love is always a kind of a warm, cozy, comfortable kind of thing. That would be true if love only involved people who were 24-7 lovable. Okay, so raise your hand if you think 24-7, every time you're awake, you are a lovable human being. Liars. <laughs> Nobody fits that description, so we know that that doesn't fit. Or if it only involved situations that required zero sacrifice. Okay, so, so those are when love is always warm and cozy and that sort of thing. You know, it, the only way love can be warm and cozy is if zero sacrifice is involved. How many of you, parents, and loving your children, never sacrificed? Good answer. So maybe only if it only involved never having to die to ourselves. You know, which is in part the, really the exact opposite of love. If you, if you look at the 1 Corinthians 13, the famous chapter, the love chapter as they call it, you know, where it gives a description of what love is, listen to these qualities and see if they have nothing to do with dying to yourself. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. It is not arrogant. Love is not rude. Husbands, have you ever, never been rude to your wife? Wife? To the husband? And then this last one, love does not insist on its own way. So no matter how many times we go through the verbal gymnastics to try to explain those moments where we think we're loving and we're actually selfish... Love is nothing but a denial of yourself. And that's why it says, going back to James chapter 2, he says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and be filled without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? Or as Paul even says in the beginning of that 1 Corinthians 13 passage, he says, if I do all of these great and mighty things and do not have love, I'm like a noisy gong or a clinging cymbal. And uh, I even used that this morning and I was testing the cymbals and trying to get right sounds. People were kind of looking at me like, could you please stop that? And I said, you know, I guess I'm doing an irritating thing. And so if I do this without love, I'm a noisy gong and clinging cymbal. And that's, 
I, I would go over there to the drums and show you the example. I'm going to chase a rabbit for just one second. I think I have time. Yes. Okay. When you play the drums, you're always taught kind of one of the early things you were taught that is that every time you hit a cymbal, you always hit the kick as well. So it kind of leaves a, the cymbal to sound kind of a booming sound to the, to the cymbal. It gives the cymbal a little bit more uh, body, a little bit more, you know, flavor to it and that sort of thing. So, so you kind of train your mind that every time your arm swings for that cymbal, your foot is going to kick that pedal no matter what. And it sounds very empty when you're just hitting a cymbal and not doing something else to give it kind of a little body or flavor. Well, that's the same thing here. Go warm, be filled, have a nice day, shut the door. Folks, that's not love. But I was preparing steak on the grill. Bring them in and feed them steak. But this is our last this or our last that. Are we known for sweating in the way we love? So they are known for their labors of love. The third thing is their steadfastness of hope in Jesus. So verse 3 says, Remembering before our God your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus. This word steadfastness is basically the word for patience. It means to, to stay under something. And this church here in Thessalonica truly had a strong hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it, not only that, you know, hope, what we hope in usually tests the quality of the hope, whether it's something, you know, worthy of clinging to and that sort of thing. And these folks had a steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does steadfastness of hope in Jesus look like? Well, if you have your Bible, turn over to Titus chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 11 through 14 to kind of give us an idea of what it means to have steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus. So two points on that. Number one is this, steadfastness of hope is a rejection of how the world says we should live. Okay, so steadfastness of hope is a rejection of how the world says we should live. Look with me in verses 11 and 12. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That word renounce, pretty powerful word, gives the idea that you are to deny by your actions that something exists. When a person who has a steadfast hope in the Lord Jesus is confronted with ungodliness or worldly passions, they don't flirt with those things. You know, sometimes Christians believe that it's okay to flirt with, with some things as long as they don't marry them. You know, we tend to think sometimes, you know, that I can kind of treat it like it half exists. You know, until things get rocky. I'm okay here, or something like that, you know, and they kind of say, well, I can kind of, I can kind of flirt with this type of thing, but, but, I, but I just can't be married to it. I can't make it so identifiable to me that there's Bill the adulterer, or there's Joe the liar, you know, or something like that. As long as I'm not named this, like there's 
Bill and Melissa Turner or something like that. You know, it's, you know, as long as I'm not married to this and so identify with this, I'm okay. I can, I can just kind of flirt around with this. The answer to that is no. Christians are to treat ungodliness or worldly passions as if they don't exist. And then the second thing here is steadfastness of hope is living the way God says to live. So verse 12, we are trained to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And then it says, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So not only is there no that comes from kind of steadfastness in Jesus. In other words, you say no to certain things, but God is wonderful to us and loving to us to also give us an opportunity to say yes to some things. There are, there are ways we ought to be living. God is not some sort of cosmic killjoy where he just says, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. No, he's saying, don't do this, but live this way. And the way he's saying here is that you are to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. You're to say yes to these things, these things that, that, that show that you have been changed by the gospel. So how do we know that this is what hope in the Lord Jesus Christ looks like? Well, because it says so. Because you see in verse 13 and 14, he says, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of, our, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So as we are being trained uh, by the grace of God, the thing keeping us in that training is waiting on the one who made it all possible. You know, as it says in verse 14, he gave himself to redeem us from all, all, all lawlessness. Essentially, that's just a restatement of renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions. And he did this to purify for himself a people, and that's saying yes to living godly lives. So, going to chase a rabbit for one more second. I don't know why I come to the side to chase rabbits. <laughs> that's kind of weird. Um, I want to answer the question, why is steadfastness of hope so important? Okay, so why is steadfastness of hope so important? Well, verse 12 says, you know, we are, he, the, the grace of God is training us to do these things, renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, live self-controlled, upright lives, and godly lives. And then it says, in this present age. That's really important there to understand the importance of steadfastness of hope or hoping in Jesus in such a way that we live radically for him. In this present age is a difficult thing. That's why we need steadfastness of hope because what is the message of this present age? ungodliness and worldly passion. That's the message essentially that we receive on a fairly regular basis from our televisions. That's a message that we receive on a fairly regular basis from our billboards. That's a message, and I'm not talking necessarily when we think ungodliness and worldly passions, we go immediately to the big ones. Folks, there's messages that tell us, you know, kind of uh, tweak your taxes a little bit. You know? It's okay to be dishonest in X moment. Your parents are morons. Just do this. It won't bother anything. You know, it's those, those little subtle moments of ungodliness that sometimes creep in as well. Or, or you're a victim. You're a victim. So you're justified in your selfishness. 
You know, these types of messages that, that aren't, you know, the biggies necessary, like sexual immorality or perversion or something like that, those are huge and those are in our face a lot of times by the things we watch sometimes or the things we listen to. There's no doubt about it, but these little subtle things sometimes hit us as well. And the world really sets out to, to make, a, make, a, make a point of everything we're going to try to share, you, share with you is tainted a little bit with ungodliness or worldly passions. And so as we are kind of being hit from everywhere on these types of messages, steadfastness of hope is the is the anchor that kind of holds us through those situations. Okay, rabbits in the cage. So, back to our text this morning, of all that we saw in, in Titus, we see it confirmed for us in verses 4 and 5 of 1 Thessalonians 1, when he says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. <coughs> Excuse me. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So what he's saying here is, we know, Paul's saying this to the church, we know God has chosen you because the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit was, was proven in your works of faith and in your labors of love and in your perseverance of hope or in your steadfastness of hope. So that's what he's saying here, okay? So perspiration, that's what we mean here. Are we putting sweat to our faith and to our love and to our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ? The second point is this, imitation. <laughs> so the back half of verse 5 and into verse 6, he says, You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us, and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So what kind of men did Paul and the crew essentially prove to be among the Thessalonians? And the answer is they proved to be faithful men. How do we know this? Because every time in the scriptures where Paul endorses imitation of himself, which, you know, if you thought about that, that's a pretty arrogant thing to say. It would be like me. But every time he does it, he kind of has a prerequisite in that situation. So, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. And then later in that same letter, in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Okay, so when he says be imitators of me, he's not saying something arrogant. He's not setting himself up as the gold standard. He's saying, as far as I am faithful to the Lord, you do that as well. And so he says be imitators, and we get our word mimic from this word. And it's the idea of, of, of being a follower. As I shared with the students when we taught this, you know, if you've None of them hardly have seen an I Love Lucy episode. So parents, what are you teaching your kids? But anyway, um, none of them have seen a I Love Lucy episode. How many of you have seen the great I Love Lucy episode where she's with uh, Harpo Marx? Okay, you kind of remember that? She's dressed like Harpo, and all of a sudden Harpo actually comes, in, the actual Harpo comes in the room, and he sees her kind of behind a curtain, thinks, you know, what's going on, and then they do this little mirror, you know, imitate each other kind of comic moment. And it's a great scene, you know, it's kind of, 
you know, one of those historic, you know, great moments in television history kind of things that they always go back to. If you ever see the I Love Lucy specials or something like that, they always show that scene, you know, as, as one that's really funny and really great. And the idea is, you know, you're kind of supposed to do the same thing. You know, that as, as, as faithful men and women radically serve Jesus, you're to imitate their moves, you're to mimic what they're doing. And that's what we're talking about here in this kind of situation. So how did this church imitate Paul and the others? It's all centered around the word of God. The first thing is they love the word of God faithfully. Notice what Paul says in verse 6. He says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. That word in literally just means location. And that word affliction literally means to squeeze or to break something. And so he's saying, you were, you were in a pressure zone. You were, you were being squeezed. You were, you were facing some type of pressure. And in that situation, you were imitators of us because you received the word. And, it, and, and he's kind of given the idea that the cause for their difficulty was the word. And they chose to receive it anyway. So what kind of affliction are we talking about? Well, Acts 17 kind of gives the story of when Paul first comes into Thessalonica and how the church was established and that sort of thing. And it says that, you know, they, uh, the, you know, as usual, Paul comes into town. He goes to the synagogue. Many Greeks and many Jews were following after Paul. And it says, but the Jews were jealous. These are the Jews who were stuck in their self-righteousness and their following after the law. The Jews were jealous, taking some wicked men of the rabble. I love how when the Jews want their job to get accomplished, they totally are hypocritical and they grab a bunch of Gentiles to do their dirty work. But it says the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out in the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are acting all against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And though it would be cool to be labeled the man who turns the world upside down, this is not a cool statement, because at this time there were kind of a a Jewish messianic group that was kind of going around and developing in these various cities, basically saying, you know, that the Messiah is coming. He's the real king. Some of them were even saying, hey, I'm the Messiah and other things like that. And so these were basically political uh, uh, problems, political insurrectionists that were popping up and kind of literally turning the world upside down or they were kind of stirring up the pot, messing with Caesar's business. And then they said, and, and he even went on to say, you know, they're even talking about this Jesus who's a king. Basileus in the Greek, which basically also applies to the label that they gave to Caesar. And we kind of get an idea, if we know any history, what Rome does with political insurrectionists. So they were in a, a, a pressure cooker of a situation, but in that situation they still clinged to the word of God. But they also received the word of God joyfully because he says here, you receive the word with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know how you can necessarily receive the word of God unjoyfully. 
I guess we had a good example of it for the entire summer by looking at Jonah, who really had a problem most of the time. But they received the word of God with joy. And here's my best take on that. What does it mean to, to, to receive the word of God with the joy of the Holy Spirit? Here's, here's what I think it means. Since the statement with the joy of the Holy Spirit is in the same sentence as you receive the word in much affliction, then, then I believe their motivation for receiving the word was the same motivation or the same joy that the Holy Spirit experiences. What is the greatest joy of the Holy Spirit? That is to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. We see like in John 16 when Jesus is describing the Spirit, he says, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will speak not of his own authority, but whatever he hears he will speak when he declares to you the things that are come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So in other words, the Spirit's role is not to draw attention to himself in any way. He is, he is all about drawing attention to the Lord Jesus Christ. So here are these Thessalonians who are not only receiving the word uh, in, in, in persecution, which is a Christ-honoring, Christ-glorifying thing as well, but they were also just, just matching up their, this word is life, and we find joy in it, and so Christ is being glorified in it all, and so they are receiving the word with the joy of the Holy Spirit means that Christ is just being magnified through these people in great ways as the word of God is being applied to their life and they are being discipled to serve him. And then the third thing is this, they, they use the word of God effectively. We're going to do more with this passage next week. But in verse 7, he says, so that, in other words, they received the word, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The thing to notice here is they received the word of God in such a way that it made them a model church. The word of God not only changed them, but it changed others through them. Again, there's that idea that faith not only saves, but it sins. And so in this case, they embrace the word in such a way, I guess it's kind of talking about the avenues, how this happened. They embrace the word in such a way that it not only impacted their life, but it rolled out into changing the lives of others. Now, landing the plane. Just some challenges I want to offer in... in in relation to, to this message. Number one is this. Is your faith in the Lord here or is it here? Okay, so is your faith in the Lord something that just saves you or is it something that is sending you? That's the challenge I want to offer. The first challenge is we need to ask ourselves is, is my trust in Jesus only here? Because if it is, check yourselves, because it ought to be sending. Josh brought up uh, in, in his prayer, the, you know, just a for instance, the idea that we are in need of a, a full-time Awana commander. And that's true. Pam has graciously stepped up into the interim position, but folks, we want to strongly emphasize as elders that this is only an interim position. I pray, we pray, that, that God is calling one of you, maybe some of you or whatever, to fill that slot. 
We're going to let Pam run it to May, and then we're going to have to ask some serious questions after that. But Pam, in her mind, really just wants to run it to December. We would really like someone to fill that slot by December. Now, this is not a car car salesman commercial or anything like that. We're not throwing a pitch or anything like that. We're just saying that this is a, 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 a slot or an opening in our church, a very important one, a very vital one, ministers to our children in a tremendous way. I remember telling some folks at, a, at another church one time that, that of all the programs I think that do the best job in getting the Word of God into their little hearts, Awanas really does that. And, I, and I'm thankful to God for that. But somebody's faith needs to compel them to fill that slot. And I'll just leave it at that. Okay? Somebody needs to fill that slot. Now, I know there's other slots and other things like that. If there's not a slot, you know, we're a Baptist church, we'll just make one for you. But uh, uh, <laughs> kidding. But, uh, but, but does, is your faith here or is it sending you? Question number two or challenge number two is this. Do you sweat in loving others? I hope in our homes this is absolutely true. Parents, I hope you serve your kids. You sweat for them. You sacrifice for them. That is right and that is good. And I, kids, I hope you learn that lesson and grow up fast and do the same not only for your kids in the future but do for your friends in the now. But I pray that each one of us sweat in serving each other. I think that's a big challenge a lot of times because, as we said, it would be wonderful if we were 24-7 lovable people. It would be wonderful if we were, you know, if the conditions were easy and smooth and everything like that. But that is just not real life, whether you're a parent or not. So we perform labors of love. Number three is this. Are you saying no to the world and yes to the Lord? That really is the indicator of whether you truly hope in Jesus or not. How do you prove someone has hope in a hamburger? They get a hamburger. They slowly eat the hamburger a lot of times. They, they enjoy every bite. They're just having a hamburger moment at that time. You know, and, 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 and so hope is just proven by a person's actions. So, so are you a person who is saying no to the world and yes to the Lord? Because that's the indicator of whether you truly have steadfast hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you're kind of flirting with things you ought not be flirting with, if you're treating them as if they're alive when they ought to be dead, then you need to check yourself on this situation. You need to see if you truly have a steadfast hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, or maybe you have hope in satisfying some personal pleasure of your own. Challenge number four, find people who love the word with all their might and imitate them. If you can't find them at this church, it's plenty of historically amazing Christians who gave it all. But we hope you find it here. But find people who love the word with all their might and imitate them. And then finally, the last challenge. 
be people who love the word with all their might. You know, if you're someone who's kind of wandering around going, I just can't find anybody like that. I, I, I look and, yeah, maybe, sort of, kind of, you know, then be that person. Start the trend. Don't wall around if I can't find anybody who loves the Lord. Then be that person. We're talking with the students this morning, and, and we, we, were, we were actually going through 1 Thessalonians in, in, on sun, in Sunday school with the students, uh, ABF thing. And, uh, and so we, um, in, in, in talking with them, we looked at qualities of, of men you want to have leading your church. Um, as we look through 1 Thessalonians 2, where Paul just kind of lays out his case to the church in Thessalonica. This is why I came. This is who I am. This is what I've done with you, that sort of thing. So we took those qualities and applied them to qualities we need to look at. And I told the students, I said, because in 30 years at least, this, the application of these things is really going to apply to you. Because at least in, in, an, in another two to, to ten years, every single student in there is going to be picking their own church as they go off to school or something like that. They're going to have to pick a church, so they're going to need to look for these type of people. But definitely in 30 years, they're going to have to be these types of people. I told him in 30 years, I'm probably not going to be a student pastor. 78-year-old student pastor. <laughs> I'll just sit in a chair and say, go do that. Go do that. You know, or something like that. Uh, but, but, uh, but, and some of them are like, you can do it. Yeah. But be a people who love the word with all of their might. Wrapping it up with this, have you ever heard the statement, no news is good news? I get that. I understand what that means, and in some maybe applications it's okay to say that, but generally that's kind of a crummy attitude for a person to have, much less a church to have. Imagine if you ran a restaurant and um, you wanted, and inspectors came in, you know, the health violator code people and everything like that, and they're checking everything, and as they walk out, you know, and, and you don't hear from them in a month or two or something like that, you just say, well, no news is good news. You know what you mean by that? Hey, we're just kind of getting by, and we were just really hoping we wouldn't have any violations on this sort of thing, but uh, we're just glad that we're not called to the carpet for some pretty visible things that we saw or we know is going on where we're slacking in this area or that area. No news is good news. Folks, we as a church need to strive for news. Good news is good news. Not no news. Just kind of skirt by on, you know, children's ministry, youth ministry, adult ministry, women's ministry, men's ministry, overall worship in general, missions, evangelism team, outreach and what we do, college ministries, singles ministries, all these things we do. We don't need to just say, well, no news is good news. As long as people are just kind of coming and, and going and that sort of thing, then, then we must be okay. And Paul is saying, I cannot say anything to you in this situation because you are way above board. You are way above okay in this situation. And so, folks, when we, when we challenge ourselves with this, we need to say, 
And I'm not saying spend more money. We need smokes and mirrors and pyrotechnics and stuff like that. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying in the quality of our faith hashing out, springing forth into action, in the quality of our love being laborious a lot of times, putting your arm around irritating people. Steadfastness of hope, those types of things ought to cause good news. Ought to cause churches in Freeport to say, man, how can we, oh, I got a church we can think about. Rocky Bayou Baptist Church. Churches up in southern Alabama, you know, what, how can we, how, oh, I've heard about this church, Rocky Bayou Baptist Church. And I'm so thankful, like I say over and over and over again, that we are not a church that has a, uh, an identity complex when it comes to missions. There are people who do not speak English that love Rocky Bayou Baptist Church on the other side of the world because we're there. And we're performing works of faith and labors of love. But folks, I, I'm not going to rant too much, but I, I want us to be, to, to, in a lot of ways, to, to cease being the reverse flashlight. You know, because David Platt gave this example one time, and it was, it was brilliant. You have a flashlight, and, and, at, and at its point of where it is, HQ, it shines brightest. And as it goes further and further out, it gets dimmer and dimmer. And the idea he said that is if we are so bright on the other side of the planet, then we ought to be five times as bright at the HQ. And sometimes I feel like, not, not a slam on us in any way, shape, or form, but sometimes we could be kind of a reverse flashlight. And we could be proud of the Wild family, which we should be. And proud of our missionaries that are on the other side of the world making mega sacrifices in order to glorify Christ. But what is happening here? We are bright on the other side of the world. By the grace of God, we are bright. Let's be bright here. Let's shine here. So let's cause the Apostle Paul to go. All right, let's pray together. God, we thank you for the opportunities you've given us, Lord, around the world and at home and wherever you placed us, Lord, to truly be people who sweat for your glory and people who, because, and how do we, how do, we do that? How do we sweat for his glory? Well, we, we have members in our church, we glom on to people we may not even know, but we've heard their stories. We, we find people worthy of imitation and we follow them. God, I pray that we will be the perspiring, the, the perspiring, imitating church that you've called us to be. And I pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.